Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Dana Balut. And I'm Hibba Fisher. And you're listening to El Empire. I used to tell my father, you will see one day, I will make a film and I will go to Cannes. <laughs> I don't know why I say that. I felt insulted. I was like, where is my audience? I didn't go to therapy. I think I should. This is an empire. Stories of exceptional Arabs around the world and their journey to the top. Today, we're speaking to the exceptional adventurer and entrepreneur, Omar Samro. Okay, so what are all the, the impressive accomplishments that you've, that you've done? So you've summited the highest mountain on every continent. You have skied the North and South Poles. To the North and South Poles. To the, I don't know. <laughs> Are they not like, okay, yeah, you've skied to the North and the South Pole. So there's two separate journeys, <laughs> like skiing to the North Pole and skiing to the South Pole. Okay. And then, uh, and then you are, um, you did the Atlantic row. I attempted to row across the Atlantic Ocean. I rode about a thousand kilometers with my teammate before capsizing in a massive storm. The boat not self-writing, the life raft not opening and spending 13 hours not knowing whether we would live or die. Um, he says casually. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, which has now actually been made into a movie, so that's uh, that's really exciting. Omar is the first Egyptian to climb Mount Everest. He's completed the seven summits where he climbed the tallest mountains on each of the seven continents. He skied to both the North and South Poles, rode across parts of the Atlantic, and has traveled to Antarctica climbing mountains no other person has before. Ahmed started his own business, Wild Guanabana, out of Cairo in 2009. The company is a different kind of travel company that hosts adventure trips around the region and globally. So I first heard about Omar Samra probably back in 2013. I actually met him uh, at a co-working space here in Dubai. He was the first um, Arab adventurer that I had heard of. And that as a chosen profession is is very unique, right? I mean, I know we used to be explorers, but today we're just, you know, we don't, we don't do this kind of stuff anymore. Yeah. You, you don't really, you don't scale mountains and you don't journey into the forests and, and Omar has done all of that. And I, I wanted to know, I wanted to know his story. Yeah? Yeah, I, we do, we're in English, right? Yeah, yeah. So speak as... So I met Omar on a weekday in February 2020. 
Actually, just after a huge rainstorm that had flooded all the streets of Cairo and thrown everybody's schedules off. Amr and I managed to meet, though, at a studio in Ma'adi in downtown Cairo. Don't feel like you need to be um, amazingly articulate with a haga. And this is also super casual if you want to go to the bathroom, if you need to take a break. Yeah. Okay. Yeah? Yeah. My name is Omar Samra. I'm 41 years old. I'm Egyptian. I'm an entrepreneur and an adventurer. And where were you born, Omar? I was born in London, more specifically in Wimbledon. And I always say this story because I was born roughly at the same time the tournament was being played in Wimbledon, which meant that my parents thought I was going to be an amazing tennis player. That was a kind of like a prophecy of sorts, but I failed. I failed at tennis. At age 11, I found out why, because I was diagnosed with severe chest asthma. The doctor that my parents took me to said that, you know, Omar, you have a peculiar kind of asthma. It will disappear naturally in your 20s, but if you want to do something about it, you should start playing sports seriously. It was it was really, really bad. I would wake up every night, almost every night, unable to breathe properly and so on. And I started, I took to the track, basically, and there was this one coach called Mohamed Riz. He's probably changed my life. He probably doesn't even know it. He proceeded to train me, and then over the next sort of weeks and months, I got much more fit, and I stopped using a lot of the medicine and inhalers the doctors had prescribed. And that sort of started a sequence of events that led me to climb my first mountain at 16, and then sort of everything happened from there. What took your parents to London? My parents moved to London because my two elder sisters, were we're a family of four. My two elder sisters are intellectually handicapped, special needs. And at the time, there was no awareness about that in Egypt. There was a, literally one government entity, but it was extremely under-equipped. So my mother was felt really helpless. So the only thing that she could do is take my sisters abroad. And when I was born they made the decision to move back to Egypt and my mom made the decision to come back and do something about this problem that was there and she started what was then the first organization and that was how special needs awareness and education sort of started in earnest and I always felt that I didn't want to be an additional burden. I remember this always being something that I thought about when a young age that I wanted to be you know, do well so that I'd, they wouldn't have to worry about me. I was a bit of a rebel in my own way, but my parents never got to know about those things because, you know, if you're, a, if you're good, you just never get caught, right? What did you want to be when you grew up and how did that manifest? An astronaut, that's all I could remember. Like maybe from the age of maybe seven or something, I was really obsessed by it. I read a lot of science fiction. I read a lot of comics. Because I was introverted, very quiet, I used to play a lot by myself. So I used to, you know, with my little sort of action figures, used to create a lot of stories and a lot of scenarios, a lot of them, again, related to science fiction. That's something that stayed with me. You know, it's it's not a dream that I've managed to accomplish, but it's something that I've worked at for many, many years, in, in, in recent years, actually. And uh, I'm still holding hope that it will happen one day. What about your parents? What are they like? I've, you know, taken a lot from my mother growing up. My mother was a very inspirational figure for me. The other thing is that I got from my dad is my dad is a very avid philatelist, a stamp collector. What to, to what what is that word? Philatelist. Philately is the art of stamp collecting. My dad was so bless his heart. He was so interested or so wanted me to get into stamp collecting so much that he, at one point, he made a collection for me. Uh, in my name and he entered it into a junior competition and it won a bronze medal 
not because of anything I did. And so, you know, as you do when you're when you grow up putting out your CV and you've got nothing in there, I was like, well, you know, I mean, let's just put that, you know. <laughs> and my biggest fear at the time when I was doing interviews was to be interviewed by a stamp collector. And then he would just sort of go deep into asking me about the collection. So I, I knew a few things so that I could ward off any suspicion. But if someone if someone really knew his stuff, I would uh, I would be I would have been caught uh, for sure. That's amazing. Were you always adventurous when you were younger? Was there always this pull to nature, or did that come later? I think well, my first mountain experience was when I was sixteen. My parents gave me the opportunity to go to a camp in Switzerland, and there I picked one of the weekends you could pick from all the different activities, and I picked climbing a mountain. It was like mainly like hiking a mountain. And I got hooked on that. I remember getting to the to the summit, and even though I'd been to many summits after, that was one of the very few ones. There was actually a little box, tin box, you know, under a bunch of rocks. Inside it, there was a little notebook, and in that notebook, there was the names of everybody that summited this mountain. And I remember sort of looking through it. This was like a sixteen-year-old looking through it, and seeing you know, no name from Egypt, no name from anywhere close in, in terms of that part of the world. Uh, I remember being very excited about that. I'm writing my name, writing where I was from, and I took up the rest of the page and like drew a pyramid or something. Just completely ruined the Swiss system. <laughs> There's a lot of firsts during that camp. First kiss, first girlfriend, <laughs> first mountain. Climbing his first mountain wasn't love at first sight or anything like that. He enjoyed it, but he didn't immediately become an adventurer full time at 16. Instead, Omar went your more typical route. He studied economics and business at the American University of Cairo, and upon graduating, he decided to move to London, where he worked as an investment banker at HSBC. I wanted something different, and I wanted to set up a kind of life where I didn't know what was coming around the corner. And it seemed to me that staying in Egypt, I would be fitting a certain template this was, those were the days when investment banking was actually sexy, like, you know, and where people actually earn money doing that. The first two, three months, just everything's so new, it was really cool. And then it started to get a bit like, what, the, what am I doing? What's this? I had a friend, his name was Dennis, Dennis O'Connor. Every week, we'd go for lunch together. One time, at the end of lunch, he, he told me that he'd done this trip where he cycled from Nice to Naples. I was fascinated. This was like the most, it was the coolest thing that I'd ever heard. And so I went to the bookstore. I remember like standing in front of the map section, closing my eyes and then just doing a sweep and just picking a map out, saying that whatever map I picked would be what I would cycle. And it was a map of Andalusia, which is the south of Spain. And then three, four months later, I was completely alone with a mountain bike arriving in Sevilla in Spain, about to cycle around the south of Spain. I cycled for about 11 days. I felt so alive doing it. I remember like one moment when I had done this big climb, like big uphill climb. It was near Marbella or something like this. We started to hug the coast. Eventually we hit the coast and it's a, it's a long, long, long downhill hugging the coast and you can feel like the wind in your face. And I was just going down this downhill, not having to pedal. And then just all of a sudden, like this um, feeling of happiness just overwhelmed me to the point that I was laughing out loud. And I was, and I, I it hit me that like, I'm so happy and I don't remember ever being as happy as I am now, but I'm completely on my own. No one else is responsible for this happiness. It's just me in the moment living this way. And I was like, I need to do more of this. This is, has to be my life somehow. 
when I came back to the bank, I still also remember very well the first time I entered into the office after this experience, and I felt like a huge like weight, like the weight of the place and the the, the pressure and the whole kind of grayness of this kind of existence of like I'm going to spend the rest of my life just sitting behind the desk, kind of plugging away. And that same week, I started putting together a plan of how I would exit the bank and this whole kind of world. It took me several years to be able to make it happen fully. And then I realized like, you know, 10 days or two weeks is not going to cut it. And so I started thinking like, if I wanted to travel for six months or a year, how much money would I need? And I started to create a budget for this, traveling obviously on a shoestring uh, budget. And I had a figure and that almost made the work more bearable because I was like, I'm working towards this target. The last time I walked out of the headquarter building, knowing that I had just quit my job, not knowing what lied in front of me was this this feeling of lightness, you know. My parents obviously were not on board with this. <laughs> <laughs> what did you tell them? Sahih, what did you, you called up your mom and your dad and you said, Mama, Baba, <laughs> I'm going to bike around the world. My parents took care of all my financial needs and school and everything like this up to the point of graduation. I had started earning money at this point. My dad was really proud of me, my I'm sure my mother too, you know, like when they meet their friends, you know, oh, my son works in this big bank in London, this and that. And so he was coming to London. I was like, you know, I'm going to invite you for dinner. Like it was a really big thing for me. Like I'm going to invite my dad for dinner and this and that. And he was like, no, no. And I was like, no, no, I have to. This is like for me and stuff. And he was like, cool. And so I invited him for like a nice Italian like dinner because I already made up my mind that I was going to quit. And uh, I figured doing it over dessert is probably the best thing. So I waited until that was happening. And then I was like, I've decided I'm going to leave the bank. And he's like, oh, interesting. Like, you know, what other bank are you joining? And I was like, well, not not really a bank. Well, I'm going to travel and uh, I'm going to travel for a while and stuff. And he couldn't, uh, it was it was hard because he couldn't understand why can't you just take a holiday for two, three weeks? This was all very new to me and I couldn't still find the words to articulate what it is that I was feeling. And so this is like one of the things I always tell people is like you don't have to be able to articulate what it is that you you want to do as long as you feel it because the articulation of the thing comes after i just had a, an insane feeling that this is what i need to do and uh, we remember like we we paid the check i paid the check and we walked all the way to the train station and he was he was staying a little bit further out the train was about to come and so we had to kind of put an you know like we had to cap this conversation and he was like this is your life you know it's your decision and everything but i don't think he had any doubt in his mind that i was going to regret this like in a very big way. When we left off, Omar had just broken the news to his parents that after being a successful investment banker in London for the past few years, he was going to quit and instead travel the world. What was the plan? The plan was to to do what across all these places? I traveled, I think it was about 13 or 14 countries across uh, Asia and Latin America. The... I had a vague plan in mind. I had committed to a volunteer program in Central America, in Nicaragua and Costa Rica. So I knew I had to get there at that time. And I knew that I wanted to travel north from there. And I wanted to do the Trans-Siberian Railway, which is goes two ways. Either you start in Beijing and you go um, all the way to Moscow via Mongolia, or there's another path that goes from Moscow to Vladivostok. So you just go across Russia. How many bags did you take with you? Just one. I'm very proud that I had like one hiking boot that I kept with me throughout the entire trip 
Um, even though that when after I finished Nicaragua, it had a hole in the soul because I ended up climbing um, a semi-active volcano, thinking it was a mountain, <laughs> and uh, getting almost to the to the top of the crater and and seeing smoke coming out of the ground, and then looking and seeing that the soles of my boots were melting, and so I I, I ran that. <laughs> That, that trip was amazing. It was 370 days, I think 13 countries. I remember going to the Falls of Iguazu, which is this huge waterfall on the border of Brazil and Argentina. You know, looking at it being like so overwhelmed with in awe of this, the, how magnificent it is and how huge it is, but kind of feeling like, yeah, uh, you know, I've seen enough after like a couple of hours or something. And then it hit me like I've, I've, I've oversaturated myself with life. I've just been getting one experience after the other and haven't had time to really process what it is that I'm seeing to the po point that that's become the normal now. Like if I wake up and see an amazing like view or whatever, that's like just regular life for me. And so, no, that wasn't cool. Like I wanted to be able to go back and digest. And obviously, more practically, I'd run out of money. That's when Omar decided to go to school for his MBA. And I promised myself going into the MBA and I was like, Omar, you've been really lucky. This is a chance for you to kind of really switch and get your career back in track and this and that. So you need to make a promise to yourself that for the next two years is just going to be like studying and great, great. I'm super on board with that, like with myself. And then <laughs> three, four weeks into the MBA, I get an email from one of the guys in the MBA and he says like, I've always had this dream of climbing Mount Everest and I'm kind of looking for people to do it like after graduation. And I was like, What? I'm finding this opportunity in the most unlikely of places. I've just joined the, like a you know top tier MBA program, and in the first month, someone sends me that, so it felt like a kind of a sign. So I, I graduated, went on Everest. I was finishing my final paper, my group submission in Basecamp, and then we went on the uh, the Everest expedition. That was about like 60 days or 65 days. Amr Samra is the first Egyptian to summit Mount Everest. At the time, also the youngest Arab to do so. I wanted to walk the same steps as Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. It was like a, as many of the, the big expeditions that I do, there was always some kind of romanticized notion of it. And so ever so that for me, of course, the fact that it was like, you know, it's definitely not the hardest mountain in the world, but it's, it's, it's the tallest. And the fact that I had climbed that mountain in Switzerland and I was sort of the first Egyptian on record anyway to do it, filled me with something and I think that made me kind of think like if I was able to replicate that feeling but on the highest mountain in the world that would be like even more spectacular a lot of people recoil at experiences like this because there's a lot of hardship and because so what's the idea of why would anybody want to go after out of their own time their own money to do something so um, difficult physically and mentally and everything but I didn't have that same relationship with uh, with pain and suffering and difficulty. Like I've actually had a a positive experience with it. It's through these challenges of like waking up every morning before school and like being pushed to my absolute limit every day with my coach that made me overcome my like uh, asthma and everything. So I had a for me being put in adversity was not something I didn't think about it as something bad. And what did it feel like? when you reached the top. So this is 2007, you were 28 years old. Can you put me in the moment of when you actually reached the peak? So it was the 17th of May of 2007. It was 
extremely labored like your movements at, at that time so usually you take a step and you take four or five breaths before you take another step because of the lack of oxygen in the morning when I was finally making the final steps to reach the top of Everest because the whole journey is sort of leading up to this kind of like going through my head sort of like a, almost like a reel of film passing by really quickly I get like within like three steps from the summit you know it's been 12 years since I first dreamt up this idea I've been training for two years specifically like four two months on the mountain I get two three steps away from the the summit and I realized that I forgot to ask the most important question of all which is basically like who am I going to call (laughs) when I reach the summit and I know what people are thinking like when I say that and probably like that doesn't sound very important at all but if you're if you're Egyptian you'll understand that if you call the wrong person from the summit you're just never going to hear the end of it every time you meet with your family and you know person's going to be like why did you call him and you didn't call me and I'm like it's it has to be my brother because you know he's one of the closest people to me if not the closest so I take out the satellite phone in those days you use the satellite phone from the top of Everest now you can use China mobile it's basically like it's like minus 30 40 degrees high wind speeds I call my brother he doesn't pick up the phone and so I'm like okay this is not how I imagined it but you know it's fine he's maybe in the bathroom or something so I'm just gonna count to 10 so I go like 1 1000 2 1000 I call him he doesn't pick up the phone so I call my mom she picks up the phone I think before it even rang and I speak to her and she passed the phone on to my brother I spoke to him and I don't remember anything that I said but I do remember very well what they said to me and the first thing was we're very proud of you and the second thing my mother said like what on earth are you doing on the summit this long get down and it was funny to receive you know climbing advice from my mom but she was right I thought I was on the summit for about 15 minutes it was probably more about 50 and it was getting dangerous when you get to the summit there's a handful of people up on the top and literally you and those like very very few people are the highest people on this planet at this moment in time so it's it's amazing um and then you realize that you're only halfway and you have to get down and then that kind of <laughs> kills it a bit but you know that you celebrate on the top but the real celebration happens when you get back to safety after Omar climbed mount everest and graduated from the london business school in the same summer he decided to return to egypt he continued his career in finance working with some friends at a local firm and decided to start a travel company so then you come back, uh, you're working with your friends in private equity, and then did you start Wild... I don't know how Guanabana. to say the name of your company. <laughs> how do you say it? Guanabana. Guanab- Guanabana. What is that? It's a fruit from Latin America. What is it? It's a, It looks like ishta. It's like a big, uh, almost oval-shaped, green, spiky fruit. And when you cut it open with a machete, it looks white on the inside ah, with black pits. I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay. They cool. also call it sour soap. So you started this. You started uh, Wild Guanabana, your travel company in 2009. Can you tell me, so this, you you take people on trips internationally and then also in Egypt, these adventure trips. Can you talk to me a bit about why you started the company and, and is there a mission behind it that you're trying to do? I always had this nagging feeling that there was something else out there that was more right for me. And I felt that I owed myself to try. My idea was that I wanted to do something that married my passion for adventure and business. But the main thing was that I wanted to 
do something that helped reconnect people with nature. Wild Guanabana hosts adventures for people to go on in Egypt and around the world. Since it started in 2009, the company has hosted over 200 trips to something like 25 countries. And I wanted to create a, a vehicle where people could live these experiences in a way that was, um, you know, meaningful, uh, authentic, ethical, and run professionally and so on. Travel at its best is a positive force for change for the local community or the host community. Travel at its worst disempowers these local communities and the money stays in, like, you know, in, the, in the hands of a few people in the big companies and it doesn't trickle down. When did you decide I'm going to do the Explorer's Grand Slam, which is to summit the tallest seven mountains in the world, Everest being one of them? So I embarked on that in 2008 after I climbed Everest and started over a number of years, six years, to climb all seven. It's something called the Explorer's Grand Slam, which is this adventure challenge to reach the North Pole, the South Pole, and the highest mountain peaks of each of the seven continents. As I list them now, forgive me for butchering some of these names, but here are the mountains that Omar has climbed. Mount Everest, Mount Kilimanjaro, Denali in Alaska, Aconagua in Argentina, Vincent Massif in Antarctica, Mount Elbrus in Russia, and the Karstens Pyramid in Indonesia. It's obviously insanely hard to climb all of these. Only 67 people in the world have ever achieved this, and Omar is the first Egyptian to have done it. Shout out to another Arab adventurer, Maxime Shire from Lebanon, who also completed the Explorer's Grand Slam actually a few years before Omar. But anyway, back to Omar's Grand Slam. The bigger challenge was actually securing the funding for it. So a lot of parts uh, financed by sponsors, which is obviously a challenge. And it's why a lot of my plans sometimes get delayed. Um, I find over time it becomes easier and easier to secure sponsorship because I've you know built a name for myself and a track record. When you think of these really difficult, far-flunged places and you're going to put yourself through two months of, as a yeah, I need to go through it, of hardship, are you being driven by the adrenaline of it? Are you being driven by how beautiful the place is going to be when you're there? What is driving you to keep going back? Like I'm driven definitely by a sense of beauty and aesthetics of the places that I go to. I'm also driven by the sense of peace and calm that I find there that I don't find like anywhere else and also sense of clarity like I have insane clarity of mind when I'm in these places doing these things and most of my life's biggest decisions have come to me including like quitting my job at least one of the times while I was out there not every moment in any expedition like this is like that but there are moments when you're climbing up there and the scenery is stunning and the sun is just rising and you know everything just like almost like time stops and everything becomes so perfect your mind is so clear like all of a sudden you have this flurry of emotions and it's like heartwarming and you've just had this brilliant idea or this thing that you've just been stuck with and achieved clarity of mind and you know exactly what you need to do and and your your life there is like so simple and it's removed from the complexities of regular life there isn't all the the noise around it to me, there's no adrenaline at all in anything that I do. To me, adrenaline is always linked to things, doing things fast. You know, base jumpers, skydivers, these people, like, there's a lot of adrenaline. When they have to make split-second decisions, I don't enjoy these things at all. Like, with the kind of endeavors and pursuits that I do, it's like things actually happen really slowly. You're hiking, you're climbing, you're rowing an ocean, like, nothing's happening fast. It's about being patient. It's a bit more, it's a bit more of a journey, and it seems to me far more spiritual. Um, 
it also seems feels to me like a very noble pursuit you know um it's a pursuit of human endeavor to prove to yourself to prove to other people that you can do these things when people give metaphors about challenges and stuff like that it's always akin to mountains climbing a mountain reaching the summit when you achieve success and a mountain journey is exactly like that you actually live through it's like life compressed So Omar has climbed Everest. He's done the Explorer's Grand Slam. And in a two-person kayak, he journeyed across the Atlantic Ocean, nearly dying in the process. He's done on-Earth lunar missions where he's camped out in isolation for two weeks in Poland for lunar research. And he tells me space exploration is what's next for him. Do you find day-to-day life boring? Like city life, do you find day-to-day city life boring? I don't find day-to-day life uh, boring, city life boring. I I find day-to-day life without an aim like to work towards um a little bit hard to 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 manage. It's something that I struggle with because the ups and downs of my life have been so extreme. Like, you know, from the ups of like, you know, reaching the summits of these mountains or competing these projects to the ultimate downs, which would be the, obviously the, the loss of my wife. Can we talk about Marwa? Yeah, of course. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, can you tell me how you met? Um, Marwa and I actually met because of my job, because of Wild Gwanabana. How I met Marwa was um, interesting. It was in 2010. I started the company in 2009. And I started promoting for a trip to Kilimanjaro where we would climb and also use the opportunity to raise awareness and funds for special needs in Egypt. And Marwa's half-sister, um, special needs, and so she kind of gravitated towards that. And she she saw an advertisement about my company in GMAG, which is this tiny little magazine that, because it's so small, it's a great uh, bathroom read. I think she was reading it while she was <laughs> on the toilet. And uh, she she reached out, and I remember the first time we spoke on the phone, I was in Sahel, I remember, and we were on the phone for over an hour. And you guys spoke for an hour? What did you yeah, talk about Yeah, I remember that that we spoke for, because in Egypt, when you, sp- when you cross the hour, the phone hangs up automatically. I think it's just to, it's like foolproof, like in case you've left the phone. And uh, so I remember like, we, like call, you know, we calling each other again to continue to finish the conversation. We talked about a, a lot of things. It was one of those conversations where I didn't like, you know, I didn't really feel that I was talking to a stranger. And we were like, uh, we became really good friends on the mountain. And then like more after that, I ended up proposing to Marwa like very, very soon after like we met. I proposed to her on the 4th of April. She said yes. And then I told her that I had one more thing to ask her that day. And uh, I told her that um, I I suggest that we get married on the 5th of May, which is literally like a month and a day after. And it's because she had this habit of, first of all, I didn't want to get engaged because I already knew that I wanted to marry her and I didn't, I thought it was pointless. But she had this habit of like grabbing my notebook and like in odd days of the, of the year, just scribbling like just random notes, sometimes like smelly boogers or like things like that but (laughs) on that specific day she had written this is going to be an amazing day so I thought it would be really cool to have that day that that she had actually picked the day but like unwittingly picked the day everything happened really fast everything just happened so effortlessly and it felt like our life was was really perfect but at the same time like so effortless we were together as a married couple for two years but I think we those two years could probably be most couples like five, six years. We literally were 
in each other's company every second of the day. And I climbed the seven summits, and the last one of the seven summits was the mountain in Alaska, in Denali. And so I came back to Miami because she wanted to give birth there. And it was in those, like, two weeks that I spent in Miami that just everything just, you know, I went, I was literally on top of the world when I climbed the seven summits. I climbed the highest mountain on every continent, but I also felt like, you know, I just accomplished my life's biggest achievement and all of this. And then within two weeks, everything just um, unraveled. And I found myself in the intensive uh, care unit, like with her on the, on the, on the bed, with the doctors like trying to resuscitate her. And it was just like a, watching a really, like a movie. But I was the, the the protagonist, and then eventually, like they um, they they kept saying, you know, that we will keep trying, and I was kept. I remember that I kept sort of like begging them to keep trying more, and then it was very mechanical. I just, you know, one of the doctors just said, you know, time of death, and just recorded. They left me. They were like, we'll give you some time, and it was just, you know, she's just there, and and it was like, um. I, I spent those final minutes basically trying to tell her everything that I thought I had like a whole lifetime to say and it was it was very difficult at the time I didn't even know like I, I we had agreed that we would call my daughter Tila but everybody in my family was against it and there and her family uh, and then I, I decided that uh, so I just kept talking to her and I I you know I, I walked out I remember walking out of the intensive care unit just like just like a kind of a shell of a human being I just went through like a very, very dark, like dark period. When this life event happened with Marwa, it was very clear to me that this was the most important like life event that has ever happened to me. And it almost seemed that my entire life, all these expeditions, all these adventures, all this kind of, you know, honing kind of my mind, trying to grow as a person, achieving more clarity, having more self-awareness, uh, has almost all of these things have been just preparing me for this one um, event and it's hard when you go through something like this to not succumb to the overwhelming idea that like my life is over and I don't care what what becomes of me anymore you're just completely um, alienated as a person from yourself so you just want to do something for the person who passed and that becomes your driving force until you're able to become kind of a human again. I remember that she had this initiative that she did where she used to collect used toys and uh, for orphans and she would collect them from friends and family and then she would go to the orphanage and spend time with the kids and play. So I wanted to resuscitate this kind of idea. We managed to register it as a charity and now six something years later, we've delivered over 100,000 toys in 10 countries makes me feel good to know that like you know she's potentially looking down or seeing all this and and happy with what we've done and can you describe to me tila what is she like your uh, six-year-old daughter tila is amazing she's like the the best of marwa and me she has fortunately more of marwa than than me her and i have like a very special bond and we're very close and um yeah, I think she's going to grow up to be like a really great person. She's named after a cartoon character. And Tila was a character that was a, a sorcerer and a warrior. I like the idea of naming people, naming things in such a way that they grow into the names. And I think like for a, for a Egyptian woman growing in kind of in those times to have elements of 
magic, which is basically believing that there's much more to life than what you can feel and touch, but also being a warrior. Uh, she has a really, really, really amazing sense of humor for somebody her age especially. The best thing about her is that she's extremely considerate, extremely sweet, which means that she also gives the best hugs ever, even when she was very, very little, like very little arms and small body, but she hugs you and you feel that someone like bigger than you is embracing you. Um, the third time I went to Antarctica, I attempted to climb a mountain that had never been climbed before. And I ended up climbing with a, a guy from Alaska. In two weeks, climbing seven mountains, three of them had never been climbed before. And so when we got back to camp, we were told that we could name those mountains. What did you name them? So those mountains are really three really beautiful mountains in Antarctica, um, standing side by side. And so I, I named one Mount Samra after my family name. The second one was Mount Marwa after my late wife. And the third one was Mount Tila after my daughter. It was very poetic for me because the three mountains were stand side by side in Antarctica, which to me is you know the most uh, beautiful, least affected uh, continent on earth from human kind of stuff. And And so for me, it was like, it's kind of a tribute. Whatever happens, those three mountains will remain together. And then, uh, you know, at the end of it, if uh, my daughter, she knows that there's a mountain named after in Antarctica, but she's only six, so I think she thinks that everybody has a mountain named after them. And when she grows up, maybe she'll go want to go climb it, or at the very least, it will be an interesting sh story she can tell in a bar or something. This episode was produced by Tamara Rasamni, Alex Atak, Hiba Fisher, and myself, Dana Balut. Sound design by Tamara Rasamni and mixing by Mohamed Khreizat. Fact-checking by Zena Duwader. Our original sting was composed by Ramzi Bashur and El Empire is produced by the Kerning Cultures Network. Rode across parts of the Atlantic and has traveled to Antarctic <laughs> and has traveled to Antarctica, Antarctica, and has traveled to Antarctica, 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 okay. Vincent Massif in an in Antarctica. Vincent Vincent Massif in an Vincent Massif in an in Dana, this is so hard. Yeah, that <laughs> Okay. If you're liking an empire, please subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. Also leave us a rating and a review on whatever podcast app you're listening to us from. Be honest, but also give us a little love. It really helps boost our rankings so that other listeners can find us on the podcast libraries. Thanks for listening, guys. Take care. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.